you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 37 ends with Joseph being sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, who then in turn take him to Egypt and sell him to someone named Potiphar. And the story seems to end rather abruptly that Joseph is taken away from us, from our side in the story, as he is away from his father Jacob. Then we come to chapter 38, which is troubling and disturbing in so many ways. Uh, It tells us a part of the life of Judah, and it's not a pretty picture. Uh, He marries a Canaanite woman, which they are not supposed to do. She gives birth to three different sons. The wickedness and the deaths of the two sons are detailed. Actually, not so much about Ur, but certainly with Onan. And then the fact that Judah failed to keep his promise to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and how she deceives him, which results in him impregnating her, and she gives birth to twins. Now we come back, now we come to chapter 39, and it picks up the story of Joseph. So all is not lost. Joseph isn't off the stage He's been brought back on. We had sort of that intermission there with Judah. And there's a real contrast between Joseph's behavior and that of his older brother, Judah. They both grew up in the same family. Uh, While Judah is not marked by moral high ground, if you wish, Joseph is. Um, And chapter 39 really gives us evidence of that fact. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first six verses of Genesis 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him or bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time, or from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in the field. So he left everything in Joseph's care or he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. So Joseph is a slave. That is to say, he was considered property. He was purchased and he belonged to someone else. He did not have the freedom to do as he wished. His life, in fact, was governed by another. He's purchased by a man named Potiphar, who is a person of some standing. Uh, He he is part of the royal court, if you wish. He is an official of Pharaoh. Joseph is a slave, but he prospered. He had success. Everything he did, he had success, which is quite remarkable. And he found favor in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. And as a result, Potiphar put him in charge of everything everything that he owned. Um, Now, the account is obviously compressed. 
Um, as we will see, Joseph is 17 in chapter 37. When we get to chapter 41, he's 30. So 13 years happened. So he was in Potiphar's house for a period of time. We don't know how long. But I think it's safe to say that Joseph was not purchased as a slave and suddenly put in charge of everything. Okay? I would argue, though we are not told so, that Joseph came in as an entry-level slave. Okay? He was purchased in the, in the market. Now he's brought in. He's not put in charge of the household. This is something that develops over time. Um, he was promoted, if you wish, until everything was put under his care. And this is an important, important thing for you to, to remember. We will come to it a bit later. Um, one more thing, and that is we're told that he did not, Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And we shouldn't imagine that somehow Potiphar is like, I'm the one that chooses what I'm going to eat. I, want, I like it prepared a particular way. I'll be in the kitchen fixing it. Uh, not at all. Uh, Peterson's uh, translation, the message, puts it this way. And all Potiphar had to concern himself with was eating three meals a day. That's all he had to worry about. Uh, Joseph and the kitchen staff, they took care of that, but that's all Potiphar had to think about was, I've got to eat three times a day. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian. Interestingly, he's not called Potiphar at this point, but called the Egyptian because of Joseph. And then at the end, intriguingly, we're given a description of Joseph. He is well-built and handsome. It seems... Not sure I would have put it in there. Am I, am I writing the story of Joseph? But it is important for two reasons. The first is we will see in a few moments that Potiphar's wife notices Joseph. Okay, But the second is, does this sound familiar to you at all? That he is well-built and handsome? We are told of Rachel, his mother, that she was lovely in form and beautiful. Joseph took after his mother. He was a handsome man and he was well built. And then we are told twice here in verses 2 and 3 and twice more later at the end of the chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. But he's still a slave. And one might say, well, you know, if the Lord's with me, why am I still the property of another person? But his circumstances did not change the reality that the God of his grandfather or great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, his father uh, Jacob, was with him. He was with him. It would have been easy for Joseph to say, God has abandoned me. I'm not home anymore. I'm not in the promised land. I'm here with a bunch of pagans. I'm the only Hebrew here. Uh, God has abandoned me. But that, in fact, was not the case. And we, the reader, are reminded of that four times in this particular chapter. So he's handsome, he's good-looking, well-built, and Potiphar's wife notices. Verse 7, And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. 
One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left the cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. You'll notice that Potiphar's wife is never named in the passages. She's, never, she's simply Potiphar's wife. Okay? But she notices Joseph, and she wants him to sleep with her. She attempts to get him to do that. Unlike chapter 38 with Tamar, who is successful in her seduction of Judah, uh, Potiphar's wife is not successful. Uh, I would say Tamar was successful because she dealt with a man of lesser morals. She dressed it as a prostitute. And, and why would she think that that would entice Judah? Well, she knew what kind of a man he was. But Potiphar's wife tries day after day after day to seduce Joseph, and Joseph resists her advances. And notice, when he speaks to her, he says something really interesting. He recognizes his freedom. With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. But he also recognizes the limits of his freedom. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. We could do a whole digression here, but I won't. But we live in a world in which freedom means I can do whatever I want. I can do anything I want. No, freedom has boundaries, and he recognizes that. He's in charge of the whole household, but she's off limits. He recognizes his freedom, but the limits of his freedom And then he says that if he would do what she wants, it would be, in fact, doing a wicked thing and that it would be a sin against God. It's interesting, the word sin appears seven times in the book of Genesis. The first time is with regard to Cain. If you do do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. With regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is grievous. Then Abimelech to Abraham, you know, when he allowed Abimelech to take Sarah into his household. And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? Then Jacob to Laban, after Laban catches up to him and and goes through all his stuff, looking for his household gods. What sin have I committed that you hunt me down? The fifth time it is mentioned is here. And then it will appear two more times with regard to what his brothers did to him. Okay? Joseph had an awareness of the reality of sin. That adultery is not merely a sin against the spouse. That if he, in fact, were to sleep with Potiphar's wife, he would be sinning against Potiphar. But more than that, he would be sinning against God. God is the one who has put the boundaries on sexuality. And therefore, Joseph... Yeah, I'm not free to do the thing that you want. That there were such things as wrong and wicked. These things should not be done. Again, interestingly enough, the word wicked or wickedness appears seven times in the book of Genesis. Okay, The first one is about humanity before the flood. Three of them are about Sodom and Gomorrah. Twice, we saw last week in chapter 39... Uh, 38 about Judah's sons, Ur and Onan, 
and here as Joseph views what she wants as something that is wicked. And Joseph will not give in to her advances. But his options are limited. After all, he is a slave. He is property. He is supposed to do whatever he is ordered. But he recognizes, and we should too, that he is owned by someone greater than Potiphar. That is, he belongs to God. And he cannot do something that is sin, something that is wicked. In Proverbs 5, which is a series of warnings against the adulteress, in verse 8, keep, a path, keep to a path far from her, do not go near the door of her house. Yeah, but Joseph is a slave in that house. It's not as though he can run away and I mean, he belongs to Potiphar. In uh, 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lust. That is what Joseph does in this case. The lust, by the way, is not his problem, it is hers. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Joseph is wise. He knows that he is a slave. He has freedom, but there are limits to his freedom. He belongs to God. He cannot do what it is she wants. So she gets her revenge. Verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you bought or you brought to us uh, came to a to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your servant treated me. He burned with anger. <coughs> she will have her revenge. He refuses her advances. And so now she accuses him of attempted rape. That in fact, he tried to force himself on her. And she has the evidence she has his cloak that's been left behind. It is the evidence. And she concocts a story and tells the household slaves. I would almost say that she rehearses this before Potiphar gets home. She tells him the story. Listen, this Hebrew that your master bought, he came here and he, he tried to have his way with me, but I screamed and so he ran off. By the way, there is, in fact, an implied blame that it's Potiphar's fault. Did you catch that at all? This Hebrew has been brought to us, and then to Potiphar, that Hebrew slave you brought us. It's like, it's your fault, Potiphar. You brought this handsome, well-built guy, and so he tried to force me. Um, I find it strange, and I don't know if you do. Um, in verse number 16, she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. I've not ever been in that situation, but I would think that the last thing she would want near her is the cloak of some man that she accuses of trying to force himself on her. But she wants the evidence so she can show it to her husband. And we are told he burned with anger. It's really quite, I think the language is quite vague. Who is he burning with anger against? It doesn't say he burned with anger against Joseph, does it? 
Um, and in fact, as we'll see in a few minutes, what he does about this, I think, almost makes me think that maybe he didn't really believe his wife. Verse number 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, two things stand out to me here. First of all, if a slave attempts to force himself on the master's wife, a foreign slave at that, by the way, not an Egyptian, but the, this Hebrew, which is mentioned twice, this Hebrew guy that you bought, okay? If he attempts to rape the master's wife, I don't think prison is what I'm going to do with this guy. And secondly, he puts him in a prison where Pharaoh's prisoners are confined. And I'm assuming this is, you know, in the hierarchy of prisons, this is not the bottom. This is probably close to the top. This is where Pharaoh's people, you know, whenever they offend him, that's where they are put. Um, So again, I'm not sure that Potiphar buys the story. But he has to do something. And so he puts him in prison. Not in the worst of prison, but prison is prison. And so Joseph goes from being a slave, being property, and now he is a prisoner. Verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Again, twice we are told the Lord was with him. First time, Joseph is a slave. Now he is a slave and he is in prison. And one might say, well, you know, if this is the Lord being with you, I'd, I'd hate to see what it'd be like if the Lord wasn't with you. But the fact that the Lord was with him is seen in the fact that God showed him kindness. He granted him favor in the eyes of the warden. And as happened in Potiphar's house, Joseph is put in charge of everything. He's put in charge of everything. So the warden basically, I mean, he's more than a trustee. I mean, the warden is, you know, you, got, you, you make sure that these prisoners stay in line and, you know, I'm going to go have lunch. And he's not really concerned. Joseph is in charge of everything. And he paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. He trusted him that much. The Lord was with Joseph. He gave him success in whatever he did. And again, one might question the truthfulness of this. I mean, really, you're successful in prison? Is is that something one aspires to? But the story continues now in chapter 40 of Genesis. And here I'll read an extended portion. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the garden, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. 
and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossomed and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all this all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention to me Pharaoh, mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. If you think about it, this is the second time that we have two dreams. The first time is Joseph having two dreams. Remember the sheaves bowing down to him, and then the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. Two dreams. Now we have two dreams. Now, two different individuals, but two dreams. Um, and just a side note here. Um, I think being modern people, we have just a very, very different view of dreams. One commentator has noted, Christians brought up in the materialistic atmosphere of Western society have long since tended to be skeptical about messages through dreams, which they have been taught to regard as glimpses of their own subconscious minds. Fellow Christians in Asia and Africa, whose education and upbringing have been in a different mold, more often testify to having received warning and guidance through dreams. You know, when we read this story, and the story of Joseph's dreams and Pharaoh's dreams, which we'll see in a few minutes, I think we, we tend to say, well, that, you know, that was a more primitive time, more primitive societies. Um, people were less informed about the nature of reality. I mentioned this when we looked at the Joseph, uh, Jacob's dream, uh, George MacDonald, a 19th century uh, Scottish author, poet, and minister, wrote, sleep is God's contrivance for giving the help he cannot get into us when we are awake. I don't know that we think that way. Here in the 21st century, uh, sleep is where we get refreshed or whatever, um, and we don't think about God working in our lives while we are asleep. Um, and I, I believe that he does. The two prisoners are put in the prison. It is Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. 
they have offended Pharaoh. And by the way, when it says that they have offended him, this is not like, oh, you put too much salt in the bread or, you know, the wine didn't taste good. Uh, the word that is used here is something close to treason. I mean, they have really done something that is worthy of them being put in prison. And as we saw, the baker will actually be executed. So it's not a small thing that they've done. I think the word offended might sort of throw us off track. Um, They are put in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. By the way, who is the captain of the guard? The house of the captain of the guard. Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. So it would seem that the prison was in fact an extension of his household. So when Potiphar threw Joseph into prison, he actually, it's not like far, far away in some penitentiary or some dungeon. He's really close by. Both men have had dreams. They're under Joseph's care, by the way. He's the trustee, and so he's checking on them. I've got to check on all the prisoners. And he notices that they look dejected. They look depressed, and he wants to know why they look sad. Why are your faces so sad? And they're like, well, we had dreams, and no one can tell us what they mean. There's no one to interpret them. Again, our modern sensibilities will lead us to say, well, what school of psychotherapy do you belong to? Um, There are different ways to interpret dreams. By the way, if you look in uh, a dictionary of psychology, uh, the definition for dream, a physiologically and psychologically conscious state that occurs during sleep and is often characterized by a rich array of endogenous sensory, motor, emotional, and other experiences. Dreams occur most often, but not by any means exclusively during periods of REM sleep. So it's a very materialistic um, way of viewing dreams. There are a few theories about the purpose and meaning of dreams. Dreams are your way of sorting out or sorting through information. Dreams reflect your innermost desires and struggles. Um, Freud theorized that, in fact, dreams were a roadmap to your unconscious. They reflect our deepest desires and wishes. Then someone else has argued that, in fact, dreams are meant to sharpen our problem-solving skills. Um, This is not what the cupbearer and the uh, the baker are thinking. They are thinking their dreams mean something, and they are really troubled because they don't know what they mean. Joseph makes it clear, I can't interpret dreams. Interpretations belong to God. But tell me what your dreams are. And so they do. And the cupbearer, I keep wanting to call him the butler, the the cupbearer, uh, tells him his dream, and it's, it's good news. You know, in three days you're going to be released. Uh, Pharaoh is going to lift you up, and once again you will be the guy to present the cup to him whenever he's thirsty, whenever he wants some wine. Um, the baker's dream and its interpretation are clear, but it's not good news this time. It's bad news. He, had, he saw three baskets of bread, of baked goods on his head, and on the top one, were all kinds of baked goods. We have from archaeological records that among the Egyptians there were 37 varieties of cake and 57 varieties of bread. So all kinds of bread. They're on top and the birds come and start eating this bread. And what it means is that in three days he is going to be executed and the birds will eat his flesh. 
And in fact, the interpretations come true. Verse 20. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once again he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. What Joseph had said did in fact come true. But in between, we've, I've looked, overlooked something here, and that is after Joseph gives a good interpretation to the cupbearer, he says, listen, when you're restored to Pharaoh, please tell him to get me out of this place because I was stolen and sold into slavery, and then I was falsely accused and put into prison. Just a side note here. I, from time to time, the NIV really fails us, and it certainly does here. Um, The ESV has, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Uh, The King James has the same thing. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. And one might say, well, no, I think the NIV is better here. But no, it is in fact that he was stolen. You're like, what? Stolen? I thought he was sold by his brothers. Deuteronomy 24-7 really helps us in this regard. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In the Old Testament, kidnapping is seen as theft, and it is a capital crime. It used to be in this country. Think of the Lindbergh kidnapping, a famous occurrence. But it used to be that kidnapping was a capital crime. You are stealing someone's life. And Joseph says, I was stolen. Sold as a slave. And now I was falsely accused. It doesn't say Potiphar's wife, but we know who it is. And he's in this pit, in this dungeon. So apparently it's like the upper level of prisons, but it's still a prison, and it's not very pleasant. And so he asked the chief cupbearer to mention to Pharaoh, but look at verse number 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. One writer puts it this way, this was a severe test of patience and faith. It was as if he alone had been abandoned by God. Joseph is still in prison. The reality is that waiting and patience are part of God's training in our lives. For those that he wants to use, he must train. And part of the training includes patience. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for Isaac. Moses was exiled for 40 years. He wanted to help his fellow Hebrews. Remember, he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. But it's another 40 years before he will be ready to be someone put in charge of God's people. James tells us at the beginning of his book, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything.
And thus, Joseph continues to wait. Question is, does he know he's waiting? We know where the story goes. Joseph doesn't. But now we come to chapter 41. And here we come to the third set of two dreams. Joseph had two dreams, the cupbearer and the butler, one each, and now Pharaoh has two dreams. Verse 1, when two full years had passed. So after the cupbearer thing, it's been two years that Joseph is still in prison. Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Pharaoh's dreams are similar, but they're also quite disturbing. Um, He's by the Nile River, and there are seven good-looking cows that are in the river. And this was not an uncommon occurrence because it's rather hot in Egypt, and so they would graze in the river. Um, and they would graze among the reeds, the papyrus that, that grew along the river. And so there they are. And here comes seven ugly, gaunt-looking cows. And the seven ugly, gaunt cows eat up the others, which is kind of gross, but that's what happens. And of course, Pharaoh wakes up. This is really quite disturbing. He falls asleep again, and there are seven uh, grains of, of seven heads of grain that are on a single stalk. They're healthy, they're good, and then you have seven that are scorched by the east wind, the, the desert wind, the Sirocco that comes in, and, and yet they eat up the other heads of grain. And again, this is disturbing, and he wakes up. When he wakes up the next morning, um, he's troubled, and he wants to know what these dreams mean. By the way, just a side note, uh, Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient world. And so for him to dream about grain, heads of grain, was very, very natural. It was not some, boy, what, what is that? That fit very much within the culture. His mind was troubled. He wanted to know what they meant, but no one could interpret them. Now enter Joseph, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once argue, or angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. He told us our dreams, and we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have, I've heard it said of you 
that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dreams, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing up on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them, then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Two years later, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. There's a young Hebrew. He is a servant of the captain of the guard, Potiphar. He interpreted our dreams and things turned out exactly the way he said they would. So Joseph is brought quickly from the dungeon. He's to clean up, obviously. He needs to shave, change his clothes. And you'll notice he refuses to take credit. You know, Pharaoh says, I hear you can. And Joseph says, I cannot do it. At this point, we know the story. We're like, yeah, Joseph, sure you can. You've been doing it all along. But he recognizes, in fact, that it is God who gives Pharaoh the answer he desires. Not necessarily a favorable answer, okay? It's not, uh, I'm sorry, it's a favorable answer, but not necessarily the news that he wants, okay? So Joseph interprets the dreams. They're one and the same. Seven good years of superabundance, bumper crops, And then seven years of horrible famine. So much so that people will forget the abundant years because the famine will be so severe. It's going to happen soon. That's why you had the dream twice. And then Joseph goes a step further. He advises Pharaoh. Okay? If you look at verse number 31. He had interpreted the dreams, but God has also given him the wisdom to know what should be done. Verse 33, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. 
This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Pharaoh and his officials like this advice. Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh, to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? By the way, when it says God, we know the true God, Pharaoh doesn't. But he sees something in Joseph that smacks of the divine. Then um, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, and there's no one so discerning and wise as you, you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took up his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. For the third time in his stay in Egypt, Joseph is put in control. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household, and not just the things in the house, but the things in the field as well. The prison warden put him in charge of all those held in the prison. He didn't pay attention to anything. He put it all under Joseph's control. And now Pharaoh says, I put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. No one will lift a hand or foot without your word. So Joseph has gone from being stolen, that is kidnapped by his brothers and sold, and then sold as a slave to Potiphar, to being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, who again is never named, to being in prison, and now he is second only to Pharaoh. We are told in verse number 46, which the Lord willing we will look at next week, Joseph was 30 years old when he came into the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The last time we were told his age, he was 17. So for 13 years, Joseph was a slave and or a prisoner in Egypt. A man who is hated by his brothers. A man who his brothers wanted to kill, but then he decided, let's just sell him. And now he is in charge of all Egypt. The Lord willing, we will continue Joseph's story next week. But here at the end of the sermon, I would have you think about something. We are told four times in chapter 39 that the Lord was with Joseph. One might wonder how, in fact, that could be. He was a slave, and then he was a prisoner. But consider the following. When Joseph became a slave in Potiphar's house. He was a stranger to Egypt. I dare say he did not speak Egyptian. He did not know Egyptian culture, Egyptian ways. It is during his time as a slave in Potiphar's house that Joseph learns the language. He learns the culture. And by the way, David Mamet defines culture as the way we do things here. So he knows, okay, this is how we do things here in Egypt. Okay? And it is during this time that he learns administrative skills. He's put in charge of the whole household. 
He also learned of the dangers present because of the false accusation by Potiphar's wife. But then he's put in prison, and there he faces humiliation. Um, But in this time, I think he becomes mature. He is seasoned to endure highs and lows. You can be in charge of Potiphar's household, and, and next moment you're in prison. But he's able to endure without falling into despair or rising in conceit. Look at me, I'm in charge of Potiphar's household. No. He does not fall into despair. And I think whatever pride he had has been sort of burned off. You may remember that when he had the dreams and he told his brothers, it's almost as though it's like, yeah, in my dreams, I'm in charge and you guys are going to bow down to me. Uh, Not a very humble young man. At that point, he was the baby of the family. Benjamin had not been born yet. He was a young man filled with pride. He's been purged of it. So that when the time comes, when he appears before Pharaoh, Joseph is ready. Those 13 years were 13 years of preparation. Everything he went through, being a slave, being falsely accused, being a prisoner, all of that was to prepare him to be the second in control of Egypt under Pharaoh. Without his time as Potiphar's slave, without his time in prison, Joseph would not have been ready. That's why we are told four times the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. We need to remember that. God was in fact preparing him for the awesome task to be in charge of all Egypt. God knew exactly what he was doing, though we may at times wonder. In secular terms, if you wish, in business terms, the story of Joseph is very instructive, that he begins at the entry level. He starts out at the bottom, and he learns the skills necessary to succeed. He learns the language, he learns the culture, he learns business administration, but he also learns character, he learns humility, not to fall into despair, but not to be filled with conceit. I'm sure you all have heard in the news of the various things going on uh, with the various companies that have made decisions to sort of support the trans movement. Um, And I remember hearing someone saying that he thought the problem was that the people at the top who were making these administrative decisions had not started at the bottom and worked their way up. They get out of college with an MBA and suddenly they're put in charge. They don't know how everything works. Joseph does. Joseph knows precisely how everything works because he started at the bottom as a slave. So now he is the perfect man to be put in charge of the land of Egypt for the seven years of bumper crops and then the seven horrible years that are going to come next. Years of terrible famine. Did Joseph know when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, God's preparing me for something great. 
Did he know when he was a prisoner, God's preparing me for something great? I would say no. Probably didn't have a clue. But he was patient and he was obedient. And he trusted God. This is, in the title of our series, a wonderful example of trial and grace. He recognized that he had to be obedient wherever he was. Hey, Potiphar's wife, I'm in Egypt. My family's up in Canaan. They sold me off. They don't care about me. I can do whatever I want. No, God was watching him. And Joseph's like, I can't do this wicked thing. I can't do this sin, this thing you want me to do. He remained faithful to God in spite of everything. And there is certainly something for us to learn from this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are told that you were with Joseph. And not once or twice or thrice, but we're told four times. Because the story seemed to go in a direction that would make us doubt that. And we are given the promise in Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. And yet there are times when we wonder. May we see from Joseph that you are training us that you have a purpose with everything that happens in our lives. The things we like and the things we don't like. That you, in fact, are bringing trials of all different kinds into our lives that we might learn to persevere, to be obedient, to trust you. And we don't know where the story goes. We don't know how the story ends in our lives, but you do. You have a purpose. You know what you're doing. May we trust you. Thank you for the story of Joseph. And by your grace in the weeks to come, we will continue to see how, in fact, you had prepared him, not only for the preserving of Egypt, but for his family, the chosen ones, the sons of Jacob. Thank you for bringing us together today. And on this day, we are reminded that it is Feli's birthday. We give thanks for her and for the years you've given her. We thank you for what she does for Dan and Lonnie and her faithfulness to them. And we remember Yakina and ask that you would touch her and give her peace. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.